church family, I don't want you to turn to Genesis today, though you might be already headed there. Instead, I want you to turn to the book of Matthew. We're going to press pause in our uh, study through the book of Genesis for just a few weeks, and um, I'll explain in just a moment what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, and then we'll pick back up with Genesis chapter 2, Lord willing, um, the, the Sunday after Easter. But I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 4 today. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to read verses 23 through 25. And so I'm going to invite you, if you're able to, to stand as we read our passage today that we're going to spend some time studying. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 through 25. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is the word of God for his church today. You may be seated. The title of our message today is In His Living. In His Living. As Christians, we are Jesus people. I think we would all agree with that simple statement, but I think a true statement. We are Jesus people. And what I mean by that is that the number one thing which sets us apart from every other belief system is our belief that Jesus is the promised one of God, who is the Son of God, who became flesh, lived a perfect life on this earth, died upon the cross, rose up from the grave, ascended back to the Father's right hand. At the center of Christianity is the Christ who is Jesus of Nazareth. And therefore, I think one of the best things that we can spend time doing as Christians is learning and growing in our understanding of who Jesus is, of what He has done and is doing and what He will do one day. There's all sorts of things we can learn about Jesus. The study of Jesus is truly, truly a lifetime endeavor. There are many ways we could go about studying Jesus from the pages of Scripture, many questions we could ask and seek to answer as we study God's Word. Over the next three weeks, I want us to try to answer three important questions concerning Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Question number one is this, what did Jesus accomplish in His living? Question number two, what did Jesus accomplish in His dying? And question number three, what did Jesus accomplish in His rising. Now, obviously, I don't intend to say everything that could be said about Jesus just in three sermons, but I do want us to gaze into the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus and see what God's Word says Jesus was accomplishing in each of those parts of His life here on this earth. So let's turn our attention this morning to the first of those questions. What did Jesus accomplish in His living? Church, through His life, Jesus revealed God's kingdom so we would believe in Him. Through His living, Jesus revealed to us God's kingdom so that we would believe in Him. Now, one of the themes of Scripture, which I think sometimes, and maybe even oftentimes, is overlooked, one of the themes of Scripture is the theme of kingdom. 
Sometimes the word kingdom is there, sometimes it's not, but the theme of kingdom is found throughout all the pages of Scripture. In Genesis, God creates a kingdom which He reigns over as king. But within the first three chapters, His loyal subjects, the first man and woman, whom He has blessed immensely, have rejected God as their sovereign ruler and instead submitted to their own wills by listening to and trusting in the words of God's enemy, that serpent in the garden, rather than in the words of God. And as a result, we see at the end of Genesis chapter 3, God kicks them out of His kingdom. Physically, He does this by physically removing them from the Garden of Eden. Spiritually, He does this by removing them from perfect fellowship with Him. They are removed from His kingdom. But God, thank God, is not finished at that point with humanity. He doesn't leave humanity being kicked out of His kingdom and just go start a new kingdom with new people. No, instead, God sets in motion then His plan that He had really from the before the foundation of the world a plan to rescue rebellious people and restore their citizenship into His kingdom. And God, in His sovereignty, chose to do this by sending a man who would be born of woman, who would destroy the serpent, and who would satisfy God's wrath against those rebellious people who had rebelled against His kingship, His lordship. This man, God tells us in His Word, would be a descendant of Abraham. He would be of the tribe of Judah. He would be of the lineage of David. And God told King David that He would give him a son who would be a forever king on a forever throne. The prophets declared that a king was coming and this king was going to destroy the wicked, was going to deliver God's people, and was going to reign forever in righteousness. It's really a summary of the entire Old Testament. And then there was about 400 years of silence. That is, silence from God. And then after that 400 years, an angel appeared to a priest in a temple. An angel appeared to a man who was a carpenter from the house of David. And an angel appeared to an unmarried peasant girl. And that angel spoke God's word to all three. And that word was this. It's time for the King to come. It's time for this promised King to come. And then angels announced that a child was born. And shepherds and wise men worshipped Him while a king tried to kill Him because the angels and the prophets both agreed that this child was the promised King. Which is good news for those who are longing for God's coming King and bad news for those who want to be king themselves. And then about 30 years of relative silence passed, other than a prophet named John who wore strange clothes and ate strange food and lived out in the wilderness and preached a message of repentance, other than him, relative silence until a man from the little town of Nazareth, which had the reputation of nothing good ever coming from this little podunk town, steps onto the scene. He asked that prophet named John to baptize him. He resisted temptation from Satan in the wilderness. And then he opened his mouth and he spoke. 
And this is what that man said. He said this, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Do you notice those words? The kingdom of God is at hand. And then for the next three years, this man named Jesus put the kingdom of God on display for all to hear and see. Jesus said things and Jesus did things which revealed important truths about God's kingdom and ultimately revealed that he was and is the true and eternal king of God's kingdom. Now, I want to share with you four truths in answer to this question, what did Jesus accomplish in his living? And these truths, you could categorize them in two categories, things that Jesus said and things that Jesus did. We could really boil our lives down to that, right? Things that we say and things that we do. We could boil Jesus' ministry down to things he said and things that he did. And you'll see that these four statements, all four fall into one of those two categories. A couple of them fall into things he said and a couple of them fall into things that he did. He taught And he preached about the kingdom of God and he displayed the kingdom of God in his actions. Truth number one, first way we want to answer this question, what did Jesus accomplish in his living, is this. Jesus clarified the standard of life in God's kingdom. Jesus clarified for us the standard of life in God's kingdom. This truth falls into the category of Jesus' words, things that he said, his preaching and his teaching. You see that here in our passage today, that he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, what I don't mean by this statement that Jesus clarified the standard of life in God's kingdom, I don't mean that somehow God had not been clear for several thousand years concerning his standard for life in the kingdom. So Jesus had to come and, and say better what God had kind of messed up in saying, no, no, I don't mean that. God had clearly revealed throughout the pages of Scripture, throughout all of history, that his standard for life in his kingdom is perfect obedience. That is his standard, perfect obedience. He had given Adam and Eve a command, and he expected them to obey it perfectly. And the first time they disobeyed, they were removed from his kingdom. His standard is perfect obedience. He revealed himself to Moses on on the mountain as, as the Holy One when he told Moses to take off his sandals because he was standing on what? Holy ground. This is a holy God. He even told the people of Israel, be not kind of holy because I'm holy, but he had told the people of Israel, be holy because I am holy. However, sinful humans had twisted God's Word in order to lower the standard so that they would be able to measure up in their own eyes. And when it came to God's standard of living, you see, God had not muddied the waters. It was humans who had muddied the waters. We were the reason that Jesus needed to clarify God's standard of living. And friends, we're still guilty, even today, of oftentimes muddying the waters when it comes to God's standard of living. Every time we fail to call sin, sin, we are muddying the waters of God's standard of living. Every time we give ourselves a a pass because, well, the other person deserved it, or we had a bad day, or, or at least we didn't do what that person over there did, every time we give ourselves a pass on sin, we are muddying the waters of what life in God's kingdom is supposed to look like what the standard for life in the kingdom of God is. 
And so because we had muddied the waters, Jesus came and He clarified God's standard for kingdom living. And church, that standard is holiness. That standard is perfection. That standard is perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness. Much of Jesus' teaching was about how people who belong to God's kingdom are supposed to live. And it was shocking to sinful people. It was shocking to sinful people. Especially sinful people who didn't like to think that they were sinners. Consider what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 verse, uh, through chapter uh, 7. Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount. This is the section that comes right after what you have your Bibles open to. So I encourage you, as I kind of scan through this, you could scan through it as well. I mean, just in the opening verses of that sermon, he says that the kingdom of God are for those who are poor in spirit, for those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, those who are peacemakers, and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And that's just the introduction to his sermon, right? He goes on to clarify for sinful humans who twist God's Word exactly what God's law meant. He said the law says do not murder. But Jesus says that means we are not even to speak an insult to someone. The law says, Jesus said, do not commit adultery. And Jesus then said that means that we're not even to lust in our hearts after another person. We read in this sermon, the law permitted divorce, which people had taken to mean divorce for any and every reason, and which God had given only because they were hard of heart. But Jesus greatly narrowed the allowance for divorce to the most extreme circumstances, even pointing back to Genesis chapter 2 as God's standard for marriage, an unbroken covenant union between a man and a woman. Go on in this sermon, and you see that Jesus said, said uh, the law says that you're to fulfill any oath that you swore. And Jesus said, but here's what I tell you, you ought to be such an honest person that you don't even have to swear an oath. People ought to be able to take your yes and no just to mean yes and no, and you're going to do it. And we could just keep going in this sermon. Life in God's kingdom means keep, keep rolling your eyes through there. It means turning the other cheek. It means loving your enemies. It means obeying God, not just with outward obedience, but with a, perfect, uh, a perfectly pure motive from your heart. It means obeying God on the outside and on the inside. Life in God's kingdom means trusting God in all circumstances. Not being anxious, but trusting the Lord always. It means removing your own sin before you help remove someone else's. And the sermon just keeps going on. In fact, Jesus took, in this sermon, Jesus took the most law-abiding citizens of His day. And that would be the scribes and the Pharisees. They knew the law backwards and forwards, and they had devoted their lives to, at least outwardly, trying to keep God's law. And this is what he said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Talk about an invitation, right? Talk about a call for people to enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the most, at least outwardly, righteous people on this planet, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. The point of this wasn't merely to teach people how to live. The point was to reveal to them that they had already failed to live right. They had failed to live up to God's standard of kingdom living. Church, 
We may think ourselves to be good people. But in God's kingdom, measuring our lives up to His standard, we are all found to be murderers, adulterers, liars, and hypocrites. It's what we are. And in His living, Jesus revealed the truth about God's kingdom by clarifying for us God's standard of kingdom living. And that standard is perfect holiness. Now, if you're thinking this, well, there goes my shot at life in God's kingdom. (laughs) There goes my shot at getting to live in God's kingdom because obviously I don't live up to that kind of standard. Obviously I am not perfect. If that's what you're thinking, then, then friend, I want to encourage you with that thought. You're well on your way to enjoying life in God's kingdom. Because the first step toward the kingdom of God is realizing and confessing just how far from the kingdom of God we have strayed. Only, only when we are broken over the depths of our sin will we be ready to look to God for salvation instead of looking to ourselves. But simply knowing the depths of our sin is not enough. If God is going to accept us into His kingdom, then then clearly, according to the teaching of Jesus, we've got to be perfect. If God is going to accept us, then we must be perfect. And if we are not perfect, then our only hope is that someone could be perfect for us. That someone could be perfect for us. The second truth I want to share with you regarding how Jesus' life revealed to us the kingdom of God is this. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law of God's kingdom. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law of God's kingdom. What did Jesus accomplish in His living? Well, He perfectly fulfilled the law of the kingdom. Not only did Jesus talk about how people in God's kingdom should live, He actually lived in perfect obedience to the law of God's kingdom. In other words, He measured up to the standard where we fail to measure up. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. In other words, don't think I've come to lower the standard. (laughs) No, I haven't come to do that. But here's what I have come to do. I have come to fulfill it. He says, I have not come to abolish them, that is the law and the prophets, but I have come to fulfill them. One part of this fulfilling of the law and the prophets was living in perfect obedience to the words of the law and the prophets. And Jesus did, in His living, do just that. Now we're kind of transitioning from things Jesus said to things Jesus did. In fact, his earthly ministry, it was inaugurated by two key events. One happened in front of a bunch of people and the other happened in in isolation. The first uh, event that inaugurated Jesus' ministry was uh, his baptism by John. And there he identified himself with simple humanity, though he himself was without sin. And we know that was a strange thing because John said, whoa, wait a second, Jesus. I don't need to be baptizing you. You need to be baptizing me. Why did John say that? Because John knew that John was a sinner and John knew that Jesus was not a sinner and there was no reason for Jesus being perfect to have to be baptized. But Jesus was stooping down, humbling himself and identifying himself with simple humanity. But it was weird. It was weird because Jesus was perfect. John knew that. The second, uh, second event that inaugurated Jesus' ministry happened in pretty much isolation. Jesus, after his baptism, went out and spent 40 days in the wilderness. And there he was tempted by Satan. He faced temptation as any man would, but 
He overcame it as only God could. And then throughout His ministry, He had numerous opportunities to fall prey to sin. Many opportunities. Just like we do. Life in a fallen world. Many opportunities to sin. But He never did. Never did Jesus speak lies. Never did He repay evil for evil. Never did He water down truth in order to gain a following. Never did He wait for others to serve Him. Never did He look with arrogance upon a sinner. Never did He twist God's Word to make life more convenient and more comfortable for Himself. Never did He reject His Father's will, even when His Father's will meant death on a cross. Jesus was perfect. He was perfect. The perfection of Jesus was even a problem for those who wanted to kill Him. This is one of my uh, favorite parts, I, I should say, about the life and leading into the crucifixion of Jesus. Scripture tells us this. The chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put Him to death. But, Scripture says, they found none. For many bore false witness against Him, but their testimony did not agree. You see, see what's happening there? As they're arresting Jesus and putting Him on trial, even the people who hated Jesus the most, who also were the people who knew the law the best, could not come up with just one factual accusation to make against Him. An entire life, And they couldn't come up with one thing. And they hated Him the most, which means they had the most motivation to find something. And they knew the law the best, which means if they could find, they could find anything at fault with anyone, I mean, they could do it. They could find, they could find fault with a flea if they wanted to. They couldn't find fault with Jesus. It was impossible. Why? Because He was perfect. He was perfect. The writer of Hebrews put it well when he said this, in the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Now that passage doesn't mean that Jesus transitioned from being imperfect to being perfect. It means that He demonstrated obedience as a human which he had not done until he left heaven and came to earth as a human. And having become human, and then having lived a perfect human life, that passage in Hebrews tells us that he became the perfect sacrifice, and thus the source of eternal salvation. Friends, Jesus did what no human being had ever done or could ever do. He lived a perfect life. He measured up to God's standard of perfection and He did it for you and for me. And this is the way. This is the only way that sinners can stand before a holy God and be accepted in His presence. We must be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. He came and He lived a perfect life so that in in His death in our place, He could then exchange our sin for His righteousness. He could take our sin and then He could give us His perfection. Praise God that Jesus came and lived among men as as a man, was tempted as all men are, and yet, unlike the rest of mankind, never, ever, ever gave in to one single temptation. Praise God that Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law of God's kingdom. Again, the book of Hebrews summarizes it so beautifully. 
Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, with confidence, not in ourselves, but in Jesus, the perfect one, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Praise God, church, for the perfection of Jesus. Not only did Jesus speak the truth about God's standard of perfection in the kingdom, and not only did Jesus perfectly live up to that standard of perfection, but Jesus also gave us a taste of what life in God's eternal kingdom would be like. Church, the third truth I want to share with you, third answer to this question of what did Jesus accomplish in his living is this. Jesus foreshadowed the removal of the curse in God's kingdom. Jesus foreshadowed the removal of the curse in God's kingdom. Twice in Matthew's introduction to the ministry of Jesus, we see him speak about the miracles Jesus performed. He says at the end of verse 23, you see this in your passage, says that, after he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, says healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And he healed them. Miracles, of course, were a big part of Jesus' ministry. It's one of the things that I think we enjoy reading about. I know I enjoy reading uh, the Gospels and, and reading about the miracles of Jesus. Unfortunately, though, I think there are at least two ways we, we sometimes miss the point of Jesus' miracles. One way we miss the point is by thinking that performing miracles was the most important reason that Jesus came. It wasn't. When, when we think this way, what happens then is we think that the application for us when we look at Jesus is for us to expect Him to do those same miracles in our lives every time we get sick or face a difficult situation. The church, hear, hear this clearly. Jesus did not come to merely remove temporary suffering from people. He came to provide us with eternal salvation from our sin. If all Jesus did was heal people of physical illnesses, then he didn't really help people in the greatest way that they could be helped, and that is for all of eternity. All of those people that Jesus healed, you know what eventually happened to them? They got sick again and they died. That's what eventually happened to them. But Jesus came to do more than that. He came to provide everlasting life for sinners. Jesus' death on the cross, you want to know what the most important thing Jesus came to do is, is He came to die upon the cross. And we'll talk more about that next week, Lord willing. But Jesus' death on the cross is the most important reason He came to earth. He came to die. Never, never did Jesus promise to provide temporary healing to all who believe in Him. The church, He did promise to provide everlasting salvation for all who believe in Him. And so we miss the point if we come to Jesus just for temporary healing. In fact, most of the crowds in verse 25, you notice verse 25, great crowds followed him. 
didn't mean they were great people. It meant it was a lot of people. They were great crowds, large in number. You know what happened to most of those crowds? They left Jesus. You know when they left him? When they realized that he didn't come to make their lives on earth just a bed of roses? When he said things like, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay, lay down his head? When he said things like, all who come after me must, must uh, deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me daily? When he said things like that, they all left. Because Jesus didn't come just to make their lives on this earth easy. You say, well, then was Jesus being a trickster? I mean, it kind of looked like he was doing that. I mean, he did all these miracles. Was he being a trickster? Was he luring people in with some cool miracles and then, and then leaving them high and dry? Absolutely not. The miracles of Jesus were doing something far more than merely providing temporary relief from physical and even spiritual suffering. And this is the second way that we're tempted to miss the point of Jesus' miracles. We can overemphasize them so much that that's all we think about and expect of Jesus Or we can underemphasize them so much that we fail to see the incredible truth that they are proclaiming to us. The point of Jesus' miracles, church, was to foreshadow the removal of the curse in God's kingdom and to point to Himself, to Jesus as the King who has the power to remove the curse, not just for a little while, but for all of eternity. While we don't want to place the wrong emphasis on Jesus' miracles, we definitely want to place the right emphasis on them. I want you to just think about what happened when Jesus showed up in the land of Israel. Sickness, disease, pain, affliction, demonic oppression was destroyed in people's lives. I mean, the blind could see and the lame could walk, the deaf could hear, and even the dead rose to life again. Can you imagine if over the course of about three years, Thousands of people in a particular country were instantaneously healed from all of their diseases and afflictions. Can you imagine that for just a moment? Can you imagine that scene? Can you imagine the joy and the happiness and the relief that that would have brought? That would be awesome. I mean, we would want to live in that place where pain and suffering disappear. Sign me up. Change my citizenship. Rent a U-Haul, let's go, right? I want to live in that place. I want to live in that place. You say, oh, wouldn't that be nice? But that's all just wishful thinking. There's no place like that. Church, I want to tell you, you're wrong if you think that. There is a place like that. Friend, I want you to know there is a place like that. It's called the kingdom of God. It's called the new heavens and the new earth. It's called the place where Jesus has gone to prepare a place for all those who believe in Him. It's the place John spoke of in his vision of heaven when he said this, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, coming down from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, you ready for this? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Do you see what was happening 2,000 years ago throughout all of Galilee? God had come to earth. 
God had come to dwell with man. And when God dwells with man, church, all the effects of the fall of man disappear. You see what Jesus was doing? He was giving people a little taste of heaven on earth. He was foreshadowing the day when the curse from all the way back in the Garden of Eden when mankind was kicked out of God's kingdom, He was foreshadowing a day when that curse would be once and for all removed by that promised man born of woman who was Jesus Himself. When Jesus told the lame man to walk, when Jesus told the blind man to see, when Jesus told the storm to be calm and the grieving mother to grieve no more and for Lazarus to get up and walk out of that tomb, He was saying and showing that the kingdom of God had come and that He was the King who had the power to cancel the curse forever and ever and ever. Church, the point of Jesus' miracles wasn't to provide temporary relief from suffering, but it was to foreshadow the eternal relief from suffering which He would purchase through His death and secure through His resurrection. How glorious, church. How glorious to live in a land where God lives and the curse is no more. How do we get there? How do we get there? We're sinners, right? We haven't measured up to God's standard of kingdom living. We deserve to be cursed and not to have the curse lifted from us. Well, friend, not only did Jesus proclaim the standard of the kingdom, and not only did He fulfill the law of God's kingdom perfectly, and not only did He foreshadow a day when that curse would be lifted and removed from God's kingdom, but church, Jesus did this. Truth number four for us. What did He accomplish in His living? Jesus proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. Jesus proclaimed the good news of God's kingdom. Notice that Matthew Matthew says in verse 23, he says that Jesus taught and proclaimed not merely the kingdom of God, but the good news of the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom. That word gospel means good news, and that word gospel is key in us understanding and being drawn to Jesus as he proclaimed the kingdom of God. Now remember, Adam sinned. And Adam passed down his sin to all humanity. Scripture says, in Adam all die. The coming of God's kingdom should be horrible news to people who have rebelled against God as their king. Because when the king comes, you know what he does? He destroys all of his enemies. That's what every good and righteous king does. He destroys his enemies. And we are enemies of God. We failed up, failed to live up to his righteous standard of perfection. We have worshipped and served the creation rather than the Creator. We have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We have twisted God's Word to say what we want it to say. We have listened to the voice of Satan rather than to the voice of the true King. And yet Matthew says that Jesus proclaimed the Gospel of the Kingdom of God. The good news of the Kingdom. How is the message of the Kingdom good news to the King's enemies? How is that good news, church? It was good news because Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God included the truth that the king king had come not to condemn, but that He had come to save. In the words of Jesus, the good news of the kingdom was this. 
For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him, Jesus said, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Church, in the words of Jesus, the good news of the kingdom was this. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to all whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Church, in the words of Jesus, the good news of the kingdom was this, for this is the will of My Father, Jesus said, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. In the words of Jesus, the good news of the kingdom was this, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. In the words of Jesus, the good news of the kingdom was this, I am, Jesus said, the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes and lives, believing in Me, shall never die. Church, in the words of Jesus, the good news of the kingdom was this. The Son of Man, Jesus came, said, came not to be served, but to serve. And you ready for this? This is the King saying this, and to give His life as a ransom for many. This is how the coming of God's kingdom is good news to the king's enemies because the king has come to lay down his life for his enemies. The king had come to die for the sin of his people so that they could be rescued from his wrath simply through faith, through belief in him. Do you notice how many times Jesus said, you must believe in me. You must believe in Me. You must believe in Me. He had come to provide a free gift of salvation. He had come to reconcile us back to the Father. He had come to restore us back into His kingdom. Friend, the good news of the kingdom is that you and I, we can have everlasting life. You can become a citizen of God's kingdom today. You can change your address. You don't need a U-Haul to do it. You can become a citizen of the kingdom where the curse is lifted forever. You can have your name written in heaven for all of eternity. Jesus, the King of God's kingdom, whose life led to His death in our place, has made a way. So what did Jesus accomplish in His living? Jesus clarified the standard for living in God's kingdom which convicts us of our sin. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law of God's kingdom which makes Him the perfect sacrifice for sinners. Jesus foreshadowed the removal of the curse in God's kingdom which ought to make our hearts long to live in His kingdom where sin and the effects of sin are no more. And Jesus proclaimed the good news of God's kingdom which is that sinners like you and me can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light as a free gift from God. Church, 
in His living, in His living, Jesus revealed the kingdom of God in a way that should lead us to believe in Him. Not just as a man, but as God. The King who left heaven and came to earth to rescue us from our sin. And as we'll focus on next week and the following week, through His death and through His resurrection, He purchased and secured this place in His kingdom for all who believe in Him. Jesus' message of the kingdom is good news, church. I want you to know that. I want you to know that this message of His kingdom is good news, but it's only for those who have eyes to see what He did and ears to hear what He said and hearts willing to believe in Him. And so, here's my question to leave us with today. Will you believe in Him? Have you received this good news of the kingdom? Have you believed in Jesus Christ? And if you haven't, Why not? Why not? In His living, He draws us to Himself to trust in His death and His resurrection for our salvation. And so will you believe in Him today? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, I want you to have an opportunity to do that. God, wants you to have an opportunity to do that. So if God is drawing your heart to trust in Jesus today, you say, I'm not a citizen of God's kingdom. I'm a sinner and I have failed to live up to God's standard of perfection and I, I am rightfully kicked out of His kingdom and I deserve to be kicked out of His kingdom forever, but I don't want to be kicked out of His kingdom forever. I want to be welcomed in. And I just want you to confess that to the Lord right now. You confess to Him that you are a sinner. Agree with Him. He already knows that you're a sinner. You just need to agree with what He already knows about you. And then then I want you to thank Him that He has made a way for salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. I want you to thank Him that the King left heaven to come to earth to die for your sin. And I want you to ask Him to save you from your sin. Not because you deserve it but because He loves you. And because He wants to show grace and mercy to you. And because He has already satisfied His wrath toward your sin by pouring it out upon His Son on the cross. Would you pray that to God right now? Would you confess your sin? Would you thank God for Jesus? And would you ask Him to save you? Church, God's Word is very clear that all who call upon the name of the Lord for salvation will be saved. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word today. God, I pray pray for the salvation of souls in this place. God, it would be wrong for us to assume that everyone here walked in having trusted Christ for salvation. God, perhaps there is one, perhaps there are many who are separated from You, and yet now are calling upon You for salvation. And God, we rejoice that as those who need to call upon You for salvation do so, repenting of their sin and trusting in Jesus for salvation, God, that You do a miraculous work of salvation. God, that You transfer them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and You write their names in heaven 
Father, where it will stay for all of eternity. And where they will live for all of eternity. God, we thank You for Your work of salvation. God, if there's someone here today who has trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, God, I pray that as soon as this service is over, that they would tell someone. They would tell someone that they came with, they would come and tell me, and that we could rejoice together that salvation has come to this place today. Father, for those of us who have already trusted in Jesus, God, may we worship Jesus more than we ever have before as we have grown in our understanding today of what Jesus accomplished in His living. God, may our hearts cry out, may our voices cry out in praise and worship. Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in His name we pray.